Hi, this is Stefan Arnzim, and I'm pleased to be the next guest on On Screen and Beyond. On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. Welcome to episode 125 of On Screen and Beyond, the weekly show that keeps you updated on what's coming your way as far as remakes, sequels, movies, DVD and TV DVD releases, as well as our weekly interview with someone from the movie, TV or music industry. I'm your host, Brian Zimrak, and this is episode 125, like I said, and we have as our guest on this show, Stefan Armgrim. Now, Stefan was Barry on Land of the Giants. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we had Deanna Lund, who played Valerie on the show. Stefan played Barry on the show, Land of the Giants, and he also is a musician, and he's a writer, and he has worked and written songs with Warren Zevon, and he's got all sorts of information to give us, and he's a great guest. Stick around. That's coming up in just a few minutes right here on On Screen and Beyond. And, you know, we've had an incredible bit week this past week. We've had hundreds of emails from people from all over the world, from listeners just like you, and uh, we love hearing from you. And some have given us suggestions for guests that uh, they'd like to have us have, and others are just writing to chat and say hi. So we appreciate whatever you're doing. And this past week alone, we had listeners from all over the world, including the U.S., Australia, Russia, Canada, United Kingdom, China, Netherlands, Denmark, Germany, France, Brazil, uh, Japan, Poland, Mexico, Hungary, New Zealand, Italy, Norway, Switzerland, Sweden, Singapore, Belgium, India, Spain, Estonia, uh, Turkey, Argentina, Greece, Peru, Bulgaria, Iceland, Cyprus, Costa Rica. It just goes on and on. It's just incredible for all the people all over the world that are just listening to On Screen and Beyond. We really appreciate it, and I love hearing from you. So if you get a chance, you know, send us an email. And uh, also, you can join us on Facebook and MySpace. Just go to onscreenandbeyond.com. You can scroll right down to the bottom, and you can click right there on either the Facebook or MySpace, and uh, you know, you can get you right there, right to it. Real easy. And... Uh, we just got so much going on here with Stefan. Got a nice interview with him. It's coming up in just a few minutes. Let's check out remakes coming up right here on On Screen and Beyond. Please hang up and try again. Remake Madness. Well, it looks like San Raimi is looking at directing a retelling of the story of Wyatt Earp, set in the future in a film called Earp. Saints for Sinners, so we'll keep an eye out for that one. And a remake of the story of Cain and Abel is in the works from Will Smith. And the film is called The Legend of Cain, and it's based on the Bible story with vampires thrown in. Something, a little twist there. Uh, let's see, another animated remake of Tarzan is in the works, and this time uh, it's in 3D. And it's from the studio that brought you the never-ending story and Resident Evil. That's about it for Remake Madness. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, upcoming movies, new and rumored, right here on On Screen and Beyond. Upcoming movies, well, Reese Witherspoon may play Peggy Lee in a biopic about the singer, and it looks like Morgan Freeman, Ashley Judd, and Harry Connick Jr. will star in Dolphin Tail. It's about a dolphin that loses its tail in a crab trap and is fitted with a prosthetic tail, 
and nurse back to health. And another fishy story uh, called Everybody Loves Whales will star Drew Barrymore in a film about saving whales. That's about it for upcoming movies. Next, taking you down to Sequel City for sequels right here on On Screen and Beyond. Well, on the sequel front at Sequel City, a sequel to The Expendables is already in the works, according to its producers. We'll keep you updated as uh, things come our way, but it uh, looks like Expendables 2 will be coming your way. And Ryan Reynolds may be wearing the green tights for a while. It seems that Warner Brothers is already looking at Green Lantern 2 and 3 before the release of the first film even comes out. So uh, we'll keep an eye out for that one. They're so confident on the how that one's going to work out. And Disney Pixar is scheduled November 2nd, 2012 as the date for Monsters, Inc. 2 as Mike and Sully return for a second outing. That's about it for sequels from On Screen and Beyond. Next, we're going to take a look at TV on DVD right here on On Screen and Beyond. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, we got a couple of quick TV things coming your way. It looks like uh, Chuck, the complete third season, will be available on DVD and Blu-ray on September 7th. And Doctor Who, the complete fifth season, will arrive in time for the holidays this year, they're telling us. And on December 12th, you can look for Yogi Bear's all-star comedy Christmas caper to come to DVD. And coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, Movies on DVD. Movies coming your way on DVD, look for Get Him to the Greek with Jonah Hill and Russell Brand as it comes to DVD on September 28th. And uh, Jonah Hex will make its way to DVD on October 12th. And The Karate Kid with Jackie Chan arrives on DVD and Blu-ray on October 5th. That's about it for movies on DVD coming your way. And next on On Screen and Beyond, we are going to be talking with Stefan Arngrim. And Stefan was Barry on Land of the Giants. And uh, he's done. Uh, he's been in all kinds of movies. Just most recently, he was in um, The A-Team. That's right. He was on the in the A-Team movie. So, But he's in a lot of TV, t- TV stuff and a lot of sci-fi stuff. And he's going to talk about all of that. He's going to talk about his uh, new movie that's coming up and uh, all sorts of stuff. It's right here on On Screen and Beyond. Today on On Screen and Beyond, my guest is an actor, musician, writer, and he's best known for his role as Barry Lockridge on the classic sci-fi TV show Land of the Giants. He has appeared on other shows such as The Virginian, Dragnet, T.J. Hooker, V, Fringe, and Caprica, just to name a few. He also has written songs for Warren Zevon and so much more. It's Stefan Arngrim. Stefan, welcome to On Screen and Beyond. Thank you very much, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Stefan, you started when you were very, very young. So, we're, like you were saying, there's, there's going to be pockets of things where people know uh, all about you, uh, but maybe one area but not the other. So uh, we're going to try to reach into all those little nooks and, and let people know what uh, diverse person you are. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I cover the waterfront, that's for sure. Um, yeah, so, yeah, okay, so reach into my nooks, then I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I, I started when I was about five years old, and my parents were in the business in New York, and, and uh and uh, it was a really lucky deal for me, right place, right time. And uh, but yeah, consequently, uh, I, I well, my father always used to say, you know, if you just don't die and you hang around, eventually people start to notice. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like that. But yeah, I do have people who sort of, you know, who gratefully follow my work and appreciate it from the age of nine, some from my teen years, some from my twenties, some you know, and going right up to now. So it, it's really it's. Very cool. Yeah. Now, how did you actually start? Your parents were in the business, but um, you know, was it? Did you say, "Hey, I want to do this too," or how did that work out? Oh yeah, I think I did. I mean, my um, both my my mother and father, you know, said I was pretty much chomping at the bit because I knew what they did. Uh, my father was on Broadway, um, and my mother was uh, doing uh, a club act and was also doing cartoon voices. She. You're probably best known for doing Casper the Friendly Ghost and Gumby and Sweet Polly Purebred on Underdog. So she was like a big voice artist. And and uh, uh, but what happened was is my parents had a party and uh, and a friend of theirs, a, a, a casting director in New York, uh, was at the party. And and I think I'd just seen uh, uh, Julius Caesar with Brando. And I, I I think I was doing standing on the I was about five and I was standing on the coffee table entertaining a bunch of my parents' friends and giving Brando's, uh, you know, Brutus uh, address. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and the casting uh, director asked my parents, have you ever thought about something working? And my parents said, well, not really. And, and, they said, and he said, well, I think he has. So, you know, <laughs> if you're ever interested. And actually, about six months later, he called and and I went in and I read to this uh, regular part on a soap opera called Search for Tomorrow, uh, yeah. uh, which was live at the time. I mean, really, like the camera, well, red light went on the camera and, you know, like 10 million people were looking at you. It was nuts. But I was five and I didn't care. I was, you know, a fearless five-year-old. And uh, so I did that for a year and a half. And that just went on. So a year and a half bit. you were on that show? Yeah, every day. Wow. <laughs> five days a week. Was that difficult learning line? I mean, I, I realize your, your character, you know, the way they do that on soaps, it's, you know, you have this piece and you might not do something for a while later, but um, is it tough, you know, being live like that? I mean, you had to... Well, I, I, I probably am not the best person to ask because I was five. I couldn't read. Um, so uh, uh, I learned my dialogue. Uh, my father uh, generally would just um, read my lines and I would repeat them until I memorized them. Generally speaking, I had not just my own dialogue, but everybody else's. But we would get the script at like 6 in the morning uh, for an 11.30 airtime. And so we would have to learn that like in a few hours. And uh, uh, all the other adult actors were running around the set looking for places to scribble their lines with magic markers where it wouldn't show up on camera. <laughs> and, and, of course, the best deal was if you could get, like, a scene where you were typing or something, and you could have your script pages right there and, and read them. Yeah. Um, but I knew everyone's dialogue, because uh, my dad would read me the whole script, and I just learned it. So, 
Um, so it kind of broke the ice for me because uh, it's, it is true. Uh, adult actors are sometimes uncomfortable around child actors, and, and that was something I had to deal with a lot when I was a kid. So I always gave myself an edge. And knowing everybody's dialogue so that I could, you know, pick them up when they fell down was really good. I, I, <laughs> that's a good icebreaker. <laughs> now, okay, here, you know, nowadays, you know, you see a few child actors on soaps and everything, but they're usually not, you know, five. Now, I mean, obviously, your character, you know, you weren't, you weren't the town drunk, you weren't the evil killer, you weren't the, the amnesia <laughs> person. What was your role on the show? <laughs> <laughs> I had a very, very specific function. Um, uh, Any time that the writers ran out of any dramatic intrigue or, you know, affairs with neighbors or anything that they could come up with, they would just, you know, um, threaten the kid. I would either get sick or hit by a car or, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, run the kid over. (laughs) Yeah, like, let's get the kid out and hurt him. And, uh, yeah, and that would be worth maybe like, uh, you know, a week's worth of, you know, um, episodes. Yeah, <laughs> you had me worried. There. I thought for a minute you were going to say, you know, then you started drinking and and chasing women <laughs> in the show. <laughs> that would have been different. Maybe today, right? They, <laughs> that would happen. Uh, this was like nineteen what sixty one or something. I mean, no. Yeah. <laughs> Just run them over. So uh, that was your very first role that you had. That was yeah. I had done a couple of commercials. Um, uh, which were horrendous experiences, actually. Uh, and this was all in, in Manhattan, in New York, where I grew up, and, uh, and that's where my career started. So um, it was very different. I mean, at that time, there was still a lot of flack between Hollywood and the movie industry and television, which was basically still headquartered in New York. They even have different unions. There was IATSE for Hollywood and Maybet, which was started in New York. And, and there was still a lot of competition. I mean, today that seems absurd, you know, movies right. and television and the Internet and everything are all just one big delivery system. But in the, you know, uh, it took until the late 60s for the film industry to really embrace television. As soon as they figured out how to make it, <laughs> yeah. no problem, you know. <laughs> now, I, I noticed that, um, I mean, I'm looking over your, your bio of the shows that you were on when you were young, and it's like, you know, you were on some, you know, big shows. I mean, like... Oh, man, uh, I was really lucky. I was really lucky. I mean, I got to do an episode of Gunsmoke. Yeah. Air, you know, and things like com- Combat, which, by the way, that is actually one of my favorite things I've ever done. Vic Morrow directed that episode we did. Wow. Called Oliver, and it, it, it was really something. Uh, it still is one of my favorite things I've done, I've done and I, I still hold Vic Morrow in my top five favorite directors. Hmm. Yeah. Now, w- so, when... Yeah. When you were young like that, I mean, you're here, you are, you're on that show, but were you at home running around playing combat, <laughs> playing war? <laughs> yeah, sure, of course. That's what was really thrilling about it is, is that with, uh, with a couple of exceptions, I actually got to be on all my favorite shows when I was a kid. Yeah, I see, I can I see that. I love combat, and when I, I mean, I remember going reading for it and thinking, oh man, this would be just so cool. And, uh, and, you know, so it was a lot of fun. I had a real favorite show. It wasn't a big hit, uh, but it was uh, with Robert Logia called T.H.E. Cat. Yep. Which was, yeah, I remember about 66, so yep. something 65, 66. God, I love that show. Well, I got to do an episode of that, yep. and that was just terrific, you know. So that was like a real, uh, for me at the time, it was just like a wonderful playground. It really was. Yep. And then when we moved out to Hollywood, those studios and their back lots were my playground. That's where I 
ran around and played at lunch and stuff. Now, when you were out on those sets, did you, you know, I've had a lot of uh, actors who have been, as kids, were, were on lots and things like that, and uh, some said they got into trouble. Were you getting <laughs> running around getting into trouble on the sets? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, now we're talking about when I was very young, so I mean, trouble is a relative thing. Yeah, I think more than anything else, I was a really, really annoyingly inquisitive kid. Yeah. Well, when and, I, and when I mean tr- trouble, I mean, you know, were you, you know, maybe accidentally getting into some, on some set when they're filming and they have to say, hey, get out of there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I did. I actually snuck on a lot of sets. I never got caught or thrown off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and I'm not sure why that is, but it didn't happen. But I got to see incredible things. I got, you know, they were making Hello, Dolly when we were there. I got to get on the stage and, and see Louis Armstrong, you know, wow. shoot his big Hello, Dolly number. I mean, you know, things like that. You know, I mean, it's just priceless stuff. I oh, can't yeah. believe I was lucky enough to be there. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I actually had pretty much free run, particularly 20th Century Fox, where we did Giants for mm-hmm. a long time, and for a couple of years anyway. And, uh, and, but I, like I say, mostly I was hanging out in the camera department, the effects department, and the editing rooms, and, and wardrobe, and, and makeup, and hair, and production offices, and, and just, uh, you know, you know, like that little Swissy Mouse character in old MGM cartoons. So what are you doing there? Hey, I, you know, I have one of those. What can you do with that? Now? And, I mean, I was just incessant. I, and everyone was really nice to me, but I'm sure that there were times when it was like, gee, get this kid out of here. <laughs> now, were you soaking that in, you know, totally. for later on, for, you know, as you, you know, as you were doing more production, things like that? I didn't think about it that way. I was just, uh, I was just really, really curious, and I always have been, and I just wanted to know. And I felt like, well, uh, look, I'm doing this. I should know how this is done. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. that was just my instinct at the time, and uh, and I really loved it. I mean, I I loved it from the beginning. I, I loved doing this, I, and I loved making films and, and uh, in any, being involved in any capacity. But, you know, that's art or entertainment, period. I've worked in a lot of forms, and I enjoy them all. So, uh, yeah, I just, I'm really... Oh, I like to know how it's done. I did the same thing with recording when I got into the studio when I was 12 years old, and I just, um, you know, I, I really latched onto it, and I punked everybody for every bit of information I could get. When you were on, uh, now, of course, you were the only child on the show uh, mm-hmm. of Land of the Giants, um, so when you were running around on the lots, were there any other child actors that you were hanging around with? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, At the Fox schoolroom, where they would put us all together when we were on hiatus, which is that little chunk of time between seasons, Mm -hmm. um, it was cheaper for them just to keep us in the schoolroom at Fox than it was to send us home and bring us back and all that stuff. And they had a little more, you know, (laughs) a little more control, too. In that schoolroom, it was quite amazing. It was me, Bill Mooney, Angela Cartwright, Darby Hinton from Daniel Boone, Mm -hmm. um... Teshima Kambuka and Howard Rice and David Jolla from Room 222. All of us in this schoolroom. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Bill was a guest uh, a, a couple months ago on the show. Oh, uh, yeah, Bill's great, man. Um, uh, Bill and I went to school together, and uh, we, uh, I even, when I produced the first record he, uh, or recording he did with his band, uh, Redwood, when, uh, really? about 14 or 15, and, uh, 
you know, yeah, I was, I, I, I wasn't, I'm afraid I wasn't a very good producer at the time. I, I had to learn how to, like, not slip out and yell at people. <laughs> but, a 14 year old tyrant, I'm afraid. <laughs> but still being at, at 14, 15, so you, you still had that, your musical, uh, uh, talent or, or intrigue about music uh, at that time? Were you into music uh, before the, the Land of the Giants? Oh, yeah, yeah. My mom was, uh, my mom was a classically trained uh, pianist and, and singer, and uh, my grandmother was uh, also a classical pianist. My mother's sister was a, a, a um, mezzo-soprano and, um, pianist, and my uncle was a... Mm, concert violinist with the L.A. Philharmonic, and yeah, I was classically trained as a kid, and then I got stung by the Delta Blues at around 12 years old, and (laughs) went in a whole different way, but yeah, yeah, it's always been really, really important to me, uh, just personally, and and then when I found out I could actually, it was lucky, because of Land of the Giants, I showed up in a lot of, it's an ancillary part of our business, I showed up in a lot of the fan and teen magazines at the time, 16, Tiger Beat, that kind of thing. And, of course, in those days, if you got in those magazines, and because there was only three networks in the United States at that time, mm-hmm. you're on TV three weeks in a row, you're famous. Uh, now, you know, it's, there's so many delivery systems, it's very different. Right. But right. Um, if you could fog a mirror, you could make a record if you were in those magazines. I mean, they really didn't care. They were just looking for stuff to sell. And, you know, hey, that's their job. I, however, it was a great opportunity for me because I actually did want to make records. I wanted to make music, and, and so I got to work with really interesting producers and musicians, and again, lucky, lucky, lucky. Yeah. Did you ever perform on the, the show at all? No. no. No, not at all. No, no little tiny pianos, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, we, never, we never found any little people instruments. Um, no, I didn't. Um, I did, however, make several records, uh, uh, during and right after uh, Land of the Giants, and uh, I performed, uh, I think I did probably, oh, geez, I don't know, a bunch of Dick Clark shows. He had a bunch of shows like uh, Where the Action Is yep. and, and stuff like that. Was, and Paul Revere and the Raiders, actually, were the hosts and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I did a bunch of those, and uh, I can't remember, Happening, Happening 69 or something like that. Right. Yeah, I did a bunch of those, and met a lot, again, met a lot. It was all, the great thing about it was I got to meet people like Bobby Hatfield, and, you know, I mean, wow. on these shows, I mean, incredible people. And uh, uh, so, yeah, yeah, I, I got to perform, and I toured with uh, several bands throughout the Pacific Northwest and, and throughout the South and stuff like that, which was weird because I was under 18, so no cabaret license or anything like that, so we had to perform in, like, armories. and. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was great. It was yeah. great. Who were your musical influences growing up? Oh, you know, I, I, I have very uh, expansive and eclectic tastes. Uh, I really, you know... Uh, I just uh, I go with Oscar Wilde on this. I just don't think there's like a, a such thing as a bad book or a bad record or a bad film. There's or a good one. There's just well executed and not well executed. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. so I mean, uh, originally, I mean, I'm a big opera buff. I love Verdi and Puccini, and you know, and Tosca is one of my favorite things in the world. But, you know, but then um, I was very influenced by Delta Blues, people like Robert Johnson and Skip James and 
And uh, and then of course when like uh, the Rolling Stones were happening and stuff like that, really big time in the '60s, they were playing sort of that blues music. They were well, they were doing that. It was almost like an homage to yeah. that, and I recognized and I liked them a lot. And so yeah, it was it was pretty eclectic. So uh, you, I, you were more a, a Stones fan than a Beatles fan, or? Well, I don't know if I'd divide it like that. I, I, I saw them as being two entirely different entities, and I did know a little bit about the way they worked because I knew some people that were involved with you know, both the Beatles and the Stones management, and I knew that they were very, very... They coordinated their efforts, that they always talked to each other before they were going to release records to make sure they wouldn't bump each other, and all that kind of stuff was really very orchestrated, actually. They were all coordinating careers, uh, and... Uh, so I, I always, I never saw them as being competitive. I think that the Beatles took uh, recording to entirely new levels. And uh, frankly, we wouldn't be listening to the same kind of music the same way had they not taken little four-track studios and done amazing things like make Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club right, Band, which yeah. was pretty impossible at the time, and they did it. The Rolling Stones, on the other hand, really kind of captured a, a particular genre of music, or several genres of music, and, and made it accessible to a lot more people, and I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah a lot of great music from both of them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now, as far as, uh, in your career, as far as music, um, you worked with Warren Zevon, right? Yeah, that was, boy, that was something. Warren yeah, what was, was that like? Well, it was amazing, actually. I met Warren just through mutual friends, just casually, and and uh, and uh, it wasn't a professional relationship. We just became friends, and we just started talking a lot. And, and uh, he uh, one day just called me up and asked me if I would. Uh, he, well, I had shown him some of my poetry, and and I played him. A, I gave him a tape of some of my songs. He asked for it. I, I don't try to voice these things on you, and. Uh, and uh, he called me uh, a few weeks later, and he said, "I wonder if you'd be interested." Actually, said, "I wonder if you'd be interested in writing some lyrics." He talks like Clint Eastwood before he did, and uh, some lyrics for this new album. I'm doing. And I thought, "Wow, you know, I mean, this guy. First of all, Warren's lyrics are, you know, I consider high art. Really, I mean, this man, he's brilliant, really funny. Oh, yeah. His references are incredible. And he's only written with like a few people, like Bruce." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, to Jackson Brown, and he's asking me to write lyrics. And I thought, well, well, okay, you know. Uh, it was a little intimidating, though. But yeah, we wrote a bunch of songs together, and, and then um, we recorded, uh, he recorded uh, two of them on uh, an album called Transverse City, which the title song, Transverse City, we wrote together. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was amazing. That was a real honor. We still have several tunes that have never been recorded or anything, which... Uh, I'm uh, I'm considering recording uh, along with this new stuff I have to sort of you know uh, for Warren you know yeah wow that'd be interesting to hear gee yeah they're cool songs uh-huh. so yeah it's always I always enjoy hearing uh, you know songs like that that are sort of been you know shuffled off to the side and, and never yeah. released and those are always interesting to hear yeah yeah well there's several that just we just um, we couldn't find a place for and. Uh, uh, Warren used to play them live sometimes, but oh. they just um, they uh, they didn't wind up on any albums that I'm aware of anyway. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so uh, musically, are you still uh, working on th- projects or? Oh yeah. yeah, 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 
Yeah, I just uh, I actually just moved into uh, uh, because we're we're starting production on this film, and uh, so I've moved in sort of a work live lost thing here in in Vancouver, and uh, where I've been working, and uh, it's nice because I've been able to set up a, a a nice studio, and I have all my guitars out and all that stuff. So yeah, we're we're moving towards uh, towards working on some new music. Uh, my partner Roland Boyle, who I've written with for probably 20 years, and uh, and a guy named Anthony Wilson, who I'm co-writing the screenplay with now, who's going to be in the picture. So yeah, it, it all sort of comes together. We're, we're, we've sort of started this little company here, which has kind of been a dream of mine for a long time, where I've run into a lot of really great, I've collected a lot of really fabulous talents, you know, particularly young talents, and uh, I'm just kind of, you know, setting up a little sort of factory here and, and everybody can come in and I'm trying to make everything available to people that I can and and, uh, and make some good work, yeah. whatever it is. And it's a lot of fun. Now, and I don't know how much you can tell us about uh, your, your screenplay that you're talking about, the, the, the film. Can you talk about uh-huh. that at all? Or, um, Well, I, 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 yes, I can. I can only talk about it a little bit, but not because it's a big secret, but just because uh, it's... Uh, it's not a film that you can just sort of tell the story of. It is, uh, it's kind of a dream. Um, it's, uh, it's called The Last Ride, and uh, it's, 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 it's a what-if movie. It's based on the supposition that there, there have been several urban myths uh, that fascinated me, and I kind of pulled them all together into this one what-if story. What if this was true? Mm-hmm. It's based around <clears throat> an urban legend, which I discovered through a dedication by a book by William S. Burroughs, one of my favorite authors, a book called Tornado Alley, published in 1972, that's dedicated to John Dillinger, wherever you are. And that struck me as interesting. So I started to do some research, and I found that there is a, a group of people and a body of, you know, of interesting evidence when John Dillinger may not have died in front of the Biograph Theater in 1934 hmm. um, and may have survived and uh, may have lived to a ripe old age. Um, that intrigued me, so I thought, what if, in 1959, this mysterious old gunslinger John Dillinger were to show up, and what if he ran into a couple of people and this whole thing began again? And, and, and so that's really what the, the, the premise of the film is, is that, you know, John Dillinger <laughs> did not die in front of the biograph, but roamed the highways and byways for 30 years. Wow, that sounds interesting. Yeah. So, it's, yeah, but it's very dreamy. I mean, it's, it works on a very dream logic, uh, and uh, it's a lot of fun to write, and uh, we've got a fa- fabulous cast, and an actress named Claire Elliott is uh, playing the the lead, uh, Billy Black, uh, uh, is uh, the girl who hooks up with the old Dillinger, and then this young man, Cal, played by Anthony Wilson, and uh, I mean, I basically, I wrote this more or less for these these actors, which is a lot of fun to do. I've been writing a lot of theater up here for specific actors, and it's just so much fun to do. Does it make it easier when you when you know the character or the person? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They just talk to themselves. I mean, I, I'm writing the dialogue, and I don't have to think it, but I don't have to be creative. Mm-hmm. I just have to think, well, well what would Claire say? Yeah. You know? <laughs> there it is. Hmm. Now, uh, is it any chance that you're going to be in this film or at all as a cameo or anything? Or I'm playing Dillinger. You are? Okay. All right. <laughs> and, and how about your music? Any of the music going to end up in it? 
Um, uh, actually, we're not we're not entirely sure about that. That is a possibility. However, we we just sort of stumbled upon an idea, which actually I'm not going to divulge. But we stumbled upon an idea, which kind of musically, which which uh, kind of ties some things together and, and lends the film an even sort of creepier quality, <laughs> if that's yeah. possible. And uh, so, um, uh, well, I'll say this: it's, it's, uh, we're we're thinking uh, late fifties old groups, actually. Um, because it's just, it lends a kind of weird, bizarre, teenage romantic quality to this whole thing, which is, you know, some of the, I mean, we're talking about bank robberies and shootouts and right. some ugly stuff, but, you know, juxtaposed against this almost dreamlike, you know, setting. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it could turn out, we're kind of actually leaving that alone. We're just going to shoot the film and then we'll get it in the editing room and we'll look at it and see what works. Uh, we're doing the same thing even with formats. Some of the film, bulk of the film is actually going to be in black and white. A lot of it will be in color, however, depending on what looks best. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. really, that's our criterion. There's no, there's no magical code. Yeah. <laughs> it mean, it's not the Wizard of Oz. But, yeah, so it's, 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 it's an interesting picture. I, I have to say, uh, in, in the process of putting this together, both, uh, Anthony and Claire and I and our producers have, we we find ourselves just shaking our heads and saying, uh, you know, I don't think I've seen anything quite like that before, which is really really exciting. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, because a lot of things are the same old thing rehashed. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and this could have easily been that, you know, but uh, it just uh, because of this idea that uh, I guess somewhere along the line we adapted that this was somebody's dream, and we don't know who it could be Billy's dream, mm-hmm. or it could be the audience's dream, and and frankly. Uh, I want to give the audience the due respect of deciding that for themselves and enjoying deciding that for themselves and enjoying going out to coffee later and arguing about that <laughs> because that's what I love about movies. And, you know, I... Yeah. You know. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Now, as far as movies, um, you know, you've done a lot over the years. Um, and you recently were in um, the remake of the A Team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and um, how, how do you feel about remakes? Well, yeah, it's okay. I mean, we produce. We're still, you know, you can still get people into, uh, you know, uh, production of Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Um, you know, and they're all different. Right. And, uh, yeah. You know, that plays theater does that all the time. As a matter of fact, that's the whole purpose of it is as a playwright is you want people to, various people to produce your plays. So I, I'm not sure that there's a problem. I have a problem with that because the fact is it's going to work or it isn't. And, uh, and there have been some remakes that I've found, um, I found very, very entertaining. I tend not to look at remakes as, as I try not to compare them. I try and look at, like, this is a film on its own. This is not an attempt to rehash something. Well, in all honesty, of course, uh, there are just attempts to, you know... Name recognition. And... Yeah. 
you know, I mean, there are just things that are rehashes, and uh, but I don't go see those because I can generally tell, you know, from the distance. Right. And uh, you know, but yeah, no, I don't think there's a problem with it. You know, it's either fine, go ahead, do it. It's either going to work or it's not. If it works, great. And if it doesn't, well, don't do that again. <laughs> do, do you ever think they'll do a remake of Land of the Giants? Oh, gee, I don't know. Yeah, I suppose sometime. I mean, I think at some point they'll probably remake everything they've ever made for television or film. It. True. <laughs> you know, what, 45, 50 years from now? Yeah, yeah. I think everything will have been rehashed. Yeah, um, probably. I mean, I know that there's been scuttlebutt for years and, and about doing the Land of the Giants film and all of that. And, and I think that would be terrific. Um, for myself, I don't really... It doesn't concern me because I think the likelihood of my... You won't be playing young Barry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would be a really creepy film, huh? All these old geezers and old broads lying around in ragged clothes. You know, old Barry. Old Barry in his little tattered Sears clothes with a beard, you know. <laughs> with Chipper. Chipper says we ate him. You know, I mean, that would just be depressing. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, now, as far as Land of the Giants, um, how did you get the part for Land of the Giants? Oh, that was that was uh, that was that was uh, turmoil and sturm and drang. It really was. It was really funny. I was uh, I was going to a, a school that I really enjoyed, and I <laughs> and I was uh, I was working with this, uh, my uh, my teacher, and uh, and uh, I was you know I was a kid, but he he. This guy, Ken, felt I had real promise as a, as a writer and, and also just my interest in literature, English literature, and, and, and French literature, too, has, has been always been big. And, uh, and he was really sort of priming me for that at a very early age. And he was, we were talking about maybe even, you know, going over to the UK and, you know, trying to get into, you know, Oxford or something, you know, like, like, but early, maybe like at 16 if I really worked at it. And then Land of the Giants came up, and you remember, this is like 1967, and uh, I mean, I was a kid, but I was still very much aware of what was going on in the world around me, and there was this whole weird cultural revolution going on, and this anti-war movement and all of that, and I'll be honest, I was, you know, I, I, was, a, I was a kid, and I, I really kind of thought at first, and my apologies to anyone, that the Land of the Giants seemed a little trivial to me, in comparison to with what my agenda was, which of course now is a little silly, and I have to admit, but I was a kid, and uh, so I, I wasn't I wasn't crazy about the idea. And actually, apparently, Erwin Allen wasn't crazy about me. Oh, really? <laughs> no. See, well, we we became very good friends, but originally, see, that was the thing with me uh, as a kid. I was not like um, I wasn't handled like a like a, a, the average child actor, and that wasn't me. That was just the way that I was perceived and the agents I had. I never was with an agency that handled any other kids. I was usually the only kid that the agent had, my agent handled. And I was really promoted as a dramatic actor from New York who happened to be like 10. Mm-hmm. So uh, I never did any sitcoms. I, Like I said, I did a couple of commercials when I was very young. I never did any after that. I basically was doing one-hour dramatic episodic and feature films and... and uh, and I was always war orphans. I didn't speak English for about five years when I was a kid because I was playing French and Italian war orphans and stuff. <laughs> you know? So, so when I, because I was 
because of the way I looked, I was considered at the time very kind of exotic and European looking. I don't know what the hell that's about, but I was I was dark and pale and you know and, and looked a little weird, I guess. And uh, I wasn't a red eyed, uh, red haired, red eyed. <laughs> that was later. Uh, I wasn't a blue eyed, red haired you know, American boy. And, uh, you know, Ron Howard and Bill only had that market cornered. Right. And, uh, you know, and, and they were great at it. And, you know, they're, you know Ron, Ron's a friend, a great guy. And, uh, uh, but I didn't, that wasn't where I was. And, and so I think Irwin, because Land of the Giants was formulaic in the sense that, you know, it's very similar in terms of structure to something like Lost in Space. We had seven, seven people in the cast. We had the little boy with, you know, Dr. Smith uh, in the first one. We had Barry and, you know, Colonel Fitzhugh, Kurt Kasner in the second one. And, you know, we, we knew that. So the challenge for Kurt and I was to try and make it different from uh, from Bill and, and Jonathan Harris. Right, yeah. That, that was always something we were aware of. How can we just twist this a little bit? Because it is the same thing. So Irwin was not exactly thrilled, but ABC apparently. I, I actually know. I'm kind of just repeating what I remember. I don't really know this to be a fact, and I could probably be corrected on this. And if so, I welcome it. But apparently it was ABC was interested in me and kind of pushed it. And then my father kind of <laughs> kind of tricked me. I didn't really want to do it either, and he said, well, look, uh, why don't you just uh, come up with a figure that you think is ridiculous, that they won't pay you, and come up with billing that you know they won't give you, and we'll put it to them, and if they give it to you, hey, and if they don't, then you can, you know, Mm -hmm. continue with what you're doing. So I did, and they did. (laughs) (laughs) So it was like, okay, well, you know, and I'm glad I did. It was a lot of fun, actually, and... More importantly, you know, again, I was a little kid and I had my own feelings about the show and everything. And, and I think most kids, when they leave a series for a while, just like anything else, when you get into adolescence and the early young adulthood, you kind of want to leave your past behind. And it did take me a number of years before I was really comfortable being Barry from Land of the Giants. I mean, you know, I left there when I was 12 and, and I... Uh, you know, I really didn't want to be typed into that. And besides which, I wasn't that kid anymore, you know. And uh, But it was only in my 20s and, and early 30s that I started meeting these incredible, I hate the term fans, it's short for fanatic. I don't like to think people with, you know, like my work are fanatic. Right. Uh, but, but, you know, what I'm saying, I started to meet these people who really, really, they got something out of this. I mean, amazing stuff. And to me, it was just a job. It's just a job, right? That's yeah. all I'm doing. But uh, I had, you know, just as an example, one of the first times it happened, a guy came up to me and told me that uh, his parents, or he, he was about the same age. He had watched Land of the Giants. His parents had broken up and divorced. During this time, he felt like an orphan, and he watched Land of the Giants, and Barry was an orphan. And Barry was so courageous and, and strong and, and always concerned about others and blah, 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 none of which I had thought of at the time. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and he said it helped him through this. And I, I was overwhelmed. I just thought, my God. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm sorry. I wish I could say, I yeah, I know. I, I did that for you. I didn't. <laughs> I was just showing up and doing the job. And I wasn't even really, you know, all, I mean, I, you know, I'm, my father and mother trained me to be professional, so I always, you know, I show up and I do what I got to do. Right. But you know, I mean, kids are kids. I was, uh, you know, 
Were you a there fan? There are other things I could have been doing. Were you a fan of science life. fiction? Uh, you know, when yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. That may have been the problem, actually. I was a really big fan of science fiction, but uh, I, I was a little bit of a snob when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and it just uh, it just seemed to me like, uh, uh, I don't know, you know, you know, I, I, I got awful heavy sometimes when I was a little boy. I don't know, you know, you get very serious sometimes, and, and I started, like, looking at the land of giants and, I mean, and, and wondering, you know, why wasn't this H.G. Wells or Jules Verne or something? Eh, you know, and it, it's not it's not supposed to be. It was Erwin Allen, and Erwin Allen was a genius at doing this well, stuff. At that time, he was hot. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, he had four shows on the air and... and, and movies. And, uh, and movies. And, you know, I mean, this guy created, essentially, the disaster film, After Giants. Right, really. yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, that's a genre that, uh, that Erwin Allen is primarily responsible for. Mm. And... Uh, you know, but it, you know that's hindsight. I have to say, I, I was, uh, you know, I, I was a little self-involved, <laughs> which happens from time to time in this business, and uh, so I probably didn't appreciate it as much as I as I should have. Did you enjoy the physical stunts that you did on the show? Oh yeah, yeah, I sure I did. Now, see, that's the other thing. Making the show was just magical because. Remember, in, 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 in these days, there was no, there were no digitally, uh, you know, uh, there were no digital effects, no computer-generated effects, so all those sets you're seeing were builds. Right. That's why they had us on three connecting sound stages at Fox that were the largest stages at that time in Hollywood, and uh, they had to be because that forest and that around the spin drift, that's real. That covers, that covered two-thirds of a sound stage. Wow. Um, yeah, and uh, all those desks and tables and curbs and cages and drain pipes and stuff were all builds. They were all real physically on the set, and and you know, we had to climb those ropes and all that jazz. And, yeah. and uh, so that was something. And then, of course, it was, at the time, the most expensive show produced for television coming in at around $350,000 an episode, which, of course, is nothing today. Right. But at yeah. the time, it was huge. Yeah. Because we were using every photo effect possible, and everybody had their hands in that. People like Art Cruikshank, and I think even L.B. Abbott. And, you know, I mean, big names in in effects were involved in putting together giants. We used everything: composite traveling mats, and blue screens, and rear projections. I mean, it was very clever and very inventive, but not cheap. Yeah, <laughs> fun well. to do though. Absolutely, just fun to do, and. I was so fortunate in that I probably had I was one of the most wonderful casts to work with. I mean, those people on that show, I mean, I know everyone talks about, oh, we're all family, but the fact is is that a lot of times that's just sort of people's wishes, and it's promotional, too, you know. I mean, that's nice to know that everyone's a family. But I have to say, um, uh, you know, Gary Conway and, and Don Matheson and Don Marshall, Deanna and Heather Young, and Kurt in particular, really did become family to me. Um, and uh, and still are, you know. Yeah. Well, uh, Deanna was uh, two weeks ago. Deanna was on the show, and uh, I love Deanna. She's yeah, the best. Yeah, and she was saying that uh, of of all the people on the show, the one who was the 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 crack up, the one that would make everybody laugh, was Kurt. Mm-hmm. That, that surprised me. I didn't I didn't take him as being the the you know the funny guy. <laughs> oh, I, just it, it was sometimes hard to get through a day, uh, hard to get through scenes. 
you know, between yeah. Kurt and Gary, Gary Conway, who is really, really a fun guy. Oh, really? And, uh, and, and Gary and Kurt would get going, and, uh, and, and sometimes it got to be just the point where you just couldn't even look at him. You know, you were in the middle, you were rolling, and you, just, you knew if you looked over at either Kurt or Gary, they were going to give you that look, and that was it. You know, it was seen <laughs> over, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, there was a lot of that. We had some great gag reels uh, for Christmas and stuff like that, and yeah. they always would put together a gag reel for us. So. so so do you see the rest of the cast uh, occasionally? Yeah, well, we talk as much as possible, and, and uh, unfortunately we don't see each other as much, and we're sort of spread out all over the world. Right, and, yeah. uh, but we do see each other at the you know occasional convention or something, um, and uh, and that's always great. And uh, but yeah, we do try and sort of keep in touch, and we keep tabs on each other, you know, uh, through the through the web and stuff like that. If, if yeah. there was a moment on the show, what would you say was the most memorable moment? On Land of the Giants for you? For me? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yes, I can, I can answer that. I even I have a photograph of the incident on my wall as we're speaking. Um, uh, it was uh, late in December, and we were just finishing up... We were just finishing up the season, and I really don't even recall if it was first or second. It may have been, no, it was first season. We were just finishing up, and uh, it was getting it was getting very close to the 23rd, which was my birthday. And I assumed that we would break before then, and we didn't. And I had to go in and work on my birthday, and nobody said a word to me, and I was not pleased. <laughs> And, uh, and, and really, and they did a brilliant job. Deanna, I think, engineered most of this. And, uh, and nobody said a word to me. As a matter of fact, people virtually ignored me all day long. And I think even Kurt kind of got on my case about something. I mean, it was just, it was like a crummy day. I was like, and they forgot my burden. Nobody said anything. I got work and people are being mean to me. And at the end of the day, uh, the first AD called for lights, house lights on the stage. And everybody came out and they wheeled out a big cake to me. And uh, with birthday candles on it, and the entire cast and crew saying happy birthday, and I got a picture of my idiot grin uh, accepting that cake. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that that stands out as being the most memorable as far as the actual work goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, my favorite episode was the second one, Weird World. Uh, that I enjoyed making the most. Uh, there was a great we had a great guest star, an actor named Glenn Corbett. Yes. Who I, yeah. I really really enjoyed working with him and, and uh, we became good friends he was a, a great guy great actor mm. I just uh, I don't know why I just like that show a lot yeah well, I got, got just a couple more questions here if you got a, a few minutes sure here. Mm-hmm. Um, you read a lot of different things on the internet uh, so sometimes mm-hmm. I like to check with somebody here uh, now um, your sister Allison mm-hmm. um, she, she was on the show last year we had her on the show um, but uh, is it true that you were the one who got her her first role in Room 222? Well, no, I, I, not really. I mean, um, uh, I probably may have had some influence. I, I, uh, I knew Michael Constantine, who was, uh, you know, played the principal on the mm-hmm. show. As yeah. a matter of fact, years later, um, I married his daughter, Thea Constantine. Oh. Um, <laughs> Who is my second ex-wife? Thank you very much. We're still very good friends, <laughs> but but yes, uh, we were on the same lot, and uh, 
I, I, I had heard that there was some interest in, in Allison for, it was just a little part, but it, it, see, Allison had had a, a lot of difficulty. I know it sounds bizarre to say that, you know, oh my God, she didn't work until she was 12. But for my sister and in my family, it was a big deal. I mean, when she was born, I was already working. I had a career. Right, yeah. And, uh, and she wanted it bad. She looked at mom and dad and me, and I think maybe more than anybody else in our family, Allison, really, really wanted to be out there. She really wanted it bad. And, uh, and, and she had a hard time because she was such a beautiful little girl. But she had one of those really smart mouths, you know. She just and and at that time in the sixties, they couldn't digest that. You know, pretty little girls were supposed to, you know, talk about you know petals and apple blossoms, right. and, and smart mouth kids were supposed to be those goofy little red haired kids right. with freckles and stuff. And that wasn't Allison. And, and and people loved her, and they would say, "Oh my God, what a little angel she is!" And then and then she'd open her mouth and they'd go, "Oh, what the hell, you know." And, uh, and cause she's always been very funny and, uh, and very cool. But anyway, uh, yeah, so she had a little hard time there for a while. And, uh, like I say, oh, geez, she didn't start working until she was 12. But, uh, yeah, so I got, I heard that there was some interest. And I did kind of go over and sort of put it by say, gee, I understand maybe, you know, my sister's going to be, that would be great, you know. And so that's about it, really. I, I, I mean, no actors don't usually have influence on, on casting and, uh, and particularly not, a, uh, you know, 11-year-old actor. <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> okay, last two questions. Um, your favorite all-time TV shows? Besides oh. Land of the Giants. <laughs> mm. Well, see, again, um, I love Land of the Giants for what it's given me and for what apparently right. people tell me that it's given them. Uh, as, as, a, as a show itself, I, 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 I couldn't rank it in my top just as you know objectively mm-hmm. but that's just my own taste man it doesn't mean anything um my favorite television shows um well uh gee oh i was a big fan of man from uncle when i was a kid oh yes Boy, i love that show yeah. i watched it all the time and uh yeah i i really like cleverly written things i always have i i, I you know i i like uh you know real fantasy and, and, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, stuff where anything is possible, stuff where the unexpected occurs. Uh, Man from Uncle was great. I liked that THE Cat show with Robert Logia. It was a real favorite of mine. Um, gee, I don't know. I, I, I have to say, uh, yeah, there's so much, there actually is a lot of good stuff. There always has been. And even right right now, I'm, I'm actually always more interested in what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. And what's going on right now is a tremendous proliferation of delivery systems. Um, you know, television, internet, right. uh, you know, everything. I mean, movies are released in, you know, standard 35 prints and, and, and IMAX now. You know, right. some of the options on delivery systems are incredible. And, um, and it's making people very creative and very interesting. I mean... You know, when I was in the Land of the Giants, uh, you had three networks. You had to pull maybe 20 million people to have, you know, to even make a bump, uh, you know. Right. Uh, <laughs> these days, if you can pull 10%, you pull 10% of that, you're a hit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so there's a lot of, you know, granted, when you expand the base, you're going to have more mediocre and maybe more junk. But you will have an expanding sort of inner core of really quality stuff. I really like the stuff that um, that uh, the guys um, uh, who did V did uh, like 4,400 before, and I thought um, 
V was uh, well, V's I think a really interesting show, and and when I did the pilot of that, I got to work with Eve Simonell, who's a director I've admired for years, and and uh, yeah, I, I you know. What what about movies? What's your favorite movies? Oh gee, that's a long list. I love <laughs> movies. Um, I, I almost have to say maybe directors. Um, uh, I. Um, I mean, David Lean, Stanley Kubrick, Nicholas Robe, uh, almost anything by any of those guys, uh, I, I have on my DVD shelf, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Films like, you know, Dr. Strangelove and, uh, and, uh, uh, Clockwork Orange and 2001 are just, you know, there are no other films like that. Um, Nicholas Robe's films like Performance and, uh, well, performance is actually one of my favorite films with Jack, uh, James Fox and Mick Jagger and Anita Pallenberg mm-hmm. in about 1968. Remarkable little movie. Yeah, there's a lot. It's, again, very eclectic taste, but, yeah, I, I, I tend to, like authors, I tend to sort of gravitate to, to, the, to, the, to the author of the work rather than the individual work. Well, Stefan, this has been fascinating, and I appreciate you taking so much time to, to talk to us. Oh, not at all, Brian. Thank you. And I want to thank Stefan so much for taking the time. He talked with us quite a while there and had a lot of information to give us, and we appreciate it very, very much. Great guest, and uh, I want to thank him so much for taking the time. And let's see, Season 4 of On Screen and Beyond will be starting in September with another great year of great guests coming your way. Be sure to check out all our past guests, as uh, you can find them at onscreenandbeyond.com and go to our reruns page. And uh, also, right on the front page, uh, of course, we have our featured past guest and uh it has been for the last uh, few weeks here it's been uh, taylor lautner but uh, now we are changing that and the featured guest becomes featured guests that's right it's the 40th anniversary of the movie mash and we're featuring our past interviews with two people from the movie mass uh sally kellerman who played Hot Lips in the movie, and Gary Berghoff, who played Radar in the film. Of course, Gary later on went on to play Radar in the TV show. And uh, they talk about Dimash, they talk about all their other things. So check him out. It's the featured guest right here on On Screen and Beyond. So that just about wraps up another episode of On Screen and Beyond. I want to thank you all very much for listening and love hearing from you. So if you want to send us an email, send it to feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com. Join us on Facebook. Just go to our homepage right down at the bottom, and we have a connection to Facebook and MySpace and all those things. So we appreciate you uh, checking us out, and uh, that's about it. So till next time, this is Brian. Take care.